Sorry for the roll call of President Saxby. I am present. Uh, board member Jones. She says a present. Uh, Lau. Here. Uh, Sanchez. Present. And Witt. Present. Right. You have a quorum? Right. Uh, the next item on the agenda is minutes, but I don't believe we received any minutes to review. Is that correct? I didn't see them. Yeah, there's no minutes um, to review for this meeting. Okay, thank you. Um, next item, agenda changes and discussions. Uh, does anybody have any changes or discussion? I'm not seeing any raised hands, so we'll pass on that. Uh, oral communications. This is an opportunity for anyone speaking to this who wants to speak to this board about uh, items that are related to our historical advisory board, but are not on the agenda tonight. Is there anyone wanting to speak? Uh, there's no public comment. No public comment. Okay, moving along. The next item is written communications. Um, I guess we had some written communications, communications as part of our package, um, a letter from AAPS with quite a few attachments. Was there anything else? No, there wasn't anything else uh, besides for the um, seven day item. Okay. Then right, moving right along, regular agenda items, item 7A. And this is a continuation of our discussion last month a public hearing to review and comment on the general plan annual report and draft housing element update. And uh, since we had quite a, a lengthy description of the policy last month, um, I would like to focus tonight on uh, any changes that may have occurred in the past month or any uh, items that are in, in flux and moving um, that we should understand about. And I would you know, also like to focus on, um, you know, getting sort of general board comments on, we've had a month now to review this, this, this information and sort of like to take it a little bit deeper and, and get comments from everybody um, regarding these proposals. So with that, I think uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, I, uh, Alan Ty is gonna give us a little uh, presentation of what's been changing and what the current state of affairs is with the housing element? Sure, thank you, Chair Saxby, uh, members of the Historic Advisory Board. Um, I'm Alan Tai, City Planner. Um, and if, if I might also add a, a third item to, to that list, uh, it would be from staff's perspective, really helpful if this board can spend a little bit of time to talk about the subject of, of new development and sensitivity to historic districts, particularly um, in our commercial corridors, uh, Park Street, as well as Webster Street. Um, the staff would just would like some input on how, how do you envision new development occurring and how do we deal with the issue of sensitivity? I think that that is going to be a very uh, important topic um, as we go ahead and take a look at our um, zoning ordinance and development standards, and basically uh, set the expectations for what, what those uh, new buildings would look like. Um, and we don't have to stop tonight. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's going to be several more months uh, uh, where we could continue to have these conversations. Um, so first of all, let me... But just to, just to jump in here with a question, yes. isn't this, uh, aren't we sending this information to the state, the 
HED uh, later this month to for review? Thank you. That actually is a very good question and, and the point that I wanted to make and had forgotten. So just to clarify, what we are sending to HCD is the draft housing element, which includes um, sort of the background analysis. So this is the technical analysis studying the city's housing needs that's required under state law. So this is a lot of the demographic information, housing needs. We are also sending uh, a list of the draft uh, housing opportunity sites. This is our sites inventory. This is our, you could sort of think of it in layman's terms as the mathematical exercise to show how the city is coming up with enough sites to meet the arena number of 5353 plus uh, a buffer. And the buffer comes from the no net loss law. I believe that's SB 166. So, which recommends a 15 to 30% buffer. So that's why we're doing that. Um, what we are also including is because this is a, an element, a chapter of the city's general plan, uh, it will include all of the goals, policies and our actions and our programs that we're including to reach the arena. Within the programs, there will be an item and you would see in the draft housing element that we are amending the zoning ordinance. So that's what we're sending to HCD. HCD. What we're not sending to HCD is the actual zoning amendments because HCD is not gonna be reviewing our draft zoning amendments. That's really not the purpose of, of their review. They're not gonna look at our zoning standard and say, hey, this setback or this height limit needs to be taller or lower or whatnot. They're gonna be looking at the city's efforts to try to facilitate the housing production. So, when I say that there's still many more months for us to work on the details, that's what I mean. There's, there's going to be time for the city of Alameda, while HCD is taking their 90 days to review our house, draft housing element, we will, have that, we will use that time to work with the community, work with the boards and commission council to, to decide, okay, how, what are the, those details going to be? So hopefully I've answered that question. Yes. Okay. Um, so with that, uh, we could talk about where we are, uh, let me pull up that exhibit. Um, let's see, may I have permission to share screen? Dunning or uh, Artie in the background. Okay, there we go. Uh, just one moment. Thank you. So uh, what I've pulled up is an exhibit that is uh, part of the uh, next Monday's planning board packet. Uh, in it describes a list of the changes that staff has made to the draft housing element um, over the last 30 days. Um, it's just a lot of miscellaneous cleanup, uh, text editing, um, unless you are interested in any of the specific items on the screen, what would I like to do is actually scroll down to the next page, which actually talks about uh, the, the, the changes uh, that would be relevant for, for this board. Yeah, this is the area that I was wanting you to focus on. Specifically Park Street and Webster Street. So we've gotten a lot of comments. Uh, we've heard the comments from AAPS. 
is particularly about the height limits. We've heard the conversation last month with this board. Um, we've also had conversations with the planning board about height limits. And um, what we hear is some consen is consensus that, hey, we really need to respect sort of the historic core. Park Street obviously is officially designated National Register District. Uh, we don't have that on Webster Street, but there's still a recognizable section of Webster Street um, between um, Central Avenue and Lincoln that you can kind of call the, the sort of the, the, the historical portion. So um, with the zoning, proposed zoning amendments, the way staff is approaching it is, I mean, we started off with, when we first went to the planning board with the zoning amendments, there were, I, I think the best way to describe it was, it, it was a little bit too prescriptive. Uh, it was almost down to the block level and buildings would have various height limits and different step backs. And uh, what we heard from the planning board at that time was, okay, maybe simplify it a little bit. And so we went back and tried to did a, do a more broad brush height limit. Um, and then now what we're hearing is, okay, maybe we just need to refine it a little bit further so that uh, we can leave maybe the height limits. So for example, Webster Street, I mean, if, if, if there's consensus that we should leave it at a three-story height limit, I think that would be okay. I think staff would be amenable to that. Um, but what we need to keep in mind is we started off this exercise assuming that, I mean, the purpose is to create housing capacity, right? We are allowing multifamily housing within these commercial cores. These are the areas that are transit rich, resource rich. They're, you know, housing above shops and services is, is a good thing near transit. So what we, what we would want to do um, is if we're going to preserve the historic core on Webster Street as is three stories, then I would ask the board to start thinking about, well, maybe north of Lincoln up to Atlantic, that that area where we see the fast food restaurants, the more underutilized sites, hopefully redeveloped in the future, but that those buildings would need to be, would need those sites would need to support enough units to be able for us to still meet the goal that we had originally projected, which is about 400 units in these districts. Otherwise, what we would need to understand is if we want smaller buildings or lesser development in those areas, then we would need to put those units somewhere else in the city. And most likely um, those units would have to go into the art district. So. Specifically, I think this board would be very, it would be very helpful for staff if this board can kind of give us some guidance about what approach to take, how would that work, uh, any issues about interface we should pay attention to. So I think those are details that would, that, that, would, that discussion would really help us craft the development standards that would um, lead to those outcomes. So generally, I mean, on, I, I've spoken about Webster Street on Park Street. I think uh, similar lines of thinking. The Park Street CC district already has a height limit of 60 feet. What we're proposing is on the side streets, that's really, we, when you look at a map of Park Street, if you walk Park Street, the development sites are really along the side streets. So I think those are the areas where we would see development potential. 
Is and those, are, those side, with, are those side streets also 60 foot height limits right now? Um, on I'm, Park Street, I, off Park Street? I'm kind of, sometimes I, we've been dealing with these numbers so, so much. <laughs> I, I sometimes get confused. Uh, Henry, do you know on top of your head? I, I think it, it's less off of the main strip of Park Street. I thought it was 60 across the board and we could look it up really quickly, but okay. Well, since we're into the weeds, sometimes I get confused about what we are proposing and what's, what's even existing now. Well, with, with that in mind, maybe it would make sense to kind of break this down a little bit and talk about the, the subcategories of the discussion piece by piece, because it is confusing. Oh, we're going to get the zoning code brought up right in front of us. Yeah, let's just look it up. <laughs> let's just take a look at what we have in the books today. I think it's 40 feet off of the... So 60 feet down to 40. Yeah, let's, let's just remind ourselves what the baseline I is. I see Webster Street. Park Street, 60 feet. 60 feet. In the remaining areas shall be three stories not to exceed 40. Okay, so, so if you're fronting Park Street, north of Encino, so that is the historic core, right? It's 60 feet. And obviously, we haven't seen any new buildings reach that height limit because of Measure A, also because it's in a historic district. Um, but on the side street, three stories not exceeding 40 feet. Um, and with a use permit, you can go up to five stories also at 60 feet. Webster Street's three stories not to exceed 40 throughout the district. So what, what staff is proposing is opportunity on the side streets to go up to 60 feet um, and where it interfaces adjacent residential districts that the residential uh, uh, district height limit be um, applied to um, sort of the interface, like within the 20 foot of the property line, just kind of an example. And then Webster Street- Does that, that mean a 20 foot buffer or something? What do you- Oh, it I would mean-, mean Between a yeah. two-story building and a five-story building, what's, what's the spacing? So one way to go about this, so, so there are a number of ways in the zoning code that you could use development standards to do a step up. Um, in the North Park Street District, currently we require uh, development sort of at a, at a 45 degree angle. So mm -hmm. you would basically okay. step back your building at a 45 degree angle as, as you go up. Uh, what staff is proposing this time is a little bit different. It basically is looking at the, uh, basically looking at distance. If you are within 20 feet of the residential district and if the residential district has a height limit of 30 feet, well then that portion of your building would be 30 feet within that sort of the buffer area. So kind of a simpler concept. I think the, the important thing to point out about um, zoning code amendments is um, having standards that are, uh, that are clear and also simple and, and easy <laughs> to implement. <laughs> you don't wanna have a code that's over, over complicated and um, that because that can be seen as a barrier for development. No, I, I agree with that. Right. Okay, um, so um, I can, I can, I should switch back. Switch back to the previous list. 
So there are, does any other board member have an objection to discussing these uh, item by item or are we okay to, or do you wanna proceed and hear the whole thing and then discuss it? I'd like to get a sense of where people are at. I'm not seeing any responses. Everybody's- Yeah, I'm, I'm okay either way, Tom. I think, you know, I wouldn't mind us sort of going through the through in, uh, on an item by item basis, but I don't mind either way. Okay. Well, I'm 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 leaning towards item by item just because it is very complex. Each one of these um, issues could could uh, involve a discussion, and that we could probably think more clearly if we're taking them on one by one. So let's let's. Um, what's, are there any questions regarding? the Park Street and Webster Street uh, proposals that are being put forward from our board. I can't see everybody in this, in my, uh, I, I don't know if somebody's raising their hand. <laughs> I don't see any. Well, maybe, Jen, did you have a? Just just one question. Um, it, it would be great to go, go go through this item item by item, I think. Um, but I, I just had a question. I know that this is probably a little bit off topic, but do we account for parking at all when it comes to any of these districts and thinking about the development? Uh, parking meaning, per, re, re, does the city require parking or require that they, or, some, or, there's some land, a portion of land required for parking? Yes. Um, so just just a couple a couple of things to note there. Uh, the city's current parking requirements are now they're, they're basically limits. We've there's a, a limit on the amount of parking a developer can provide as part of their project. So there's no longer minimum requirements or maximum requirements. Inevitably, um, developers will account for parking in the development and the types of multifamily buildings that we will see are likely going to be called podium type construction where, where the ground floor is built with steel and concrete, basically setting up a podium that supports wooden construction, wood frame construction above that. And typically the uh, podium structure is where you would see the parking. Um, but because the city has really set the uh, parking requirements to a maximum, the number of parking spaces is really going to be up to the developer and uh, market demand. So, but if there's parking on the ground floor, um, is it also restricted in these in these particular two streets that it would have a retail front on the ground floor? Yeah. So, so a developer would need to um, reserve their frontage space for retail, and then perhaps okay. if there's space behind it, that would be for parking, or ideally. Um, there would be a minimal amount of parking, um, which is, I mean, the idea is we're, we're trying to encourage this type of development on our most transit-rich corridors. So, um, you know, it's, it's possible that a developer can get away with, you know, minimum amount of parking, unbundling the parking spaces from the units um, and, and make it work. Okay, are there other questions, board members? Well, I may, may staff offer a suggestion about um, maybe how to go about this discussion. Um, and, and also no pressure to go through the entire list tonight because we can also come back next month and continue the conversation. Um, I think for staff and maybe also the members of the 
public who have commented on this very issue, it would be very helpful. And I think the city council on Tuesday also um, was looking forward to this board um, providing some guidance or you know your comments about the uh, new development on Park Street and Webster Street. Um, well, uh, at, mm -hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say at this council meeting, some of the discussion involved maybe corner corner sites could uh, absorb a taller building, more iconic architecture, taller buildings, but maybe on other uh, mid-block settings, you, you don't have such a tall building and you have something a little bit more sensitive. And so, you know, we can... I, yeah, it's that all was worthy. an idea. Yeah, it's all worthy worthy for the discussion, and I, I don't necessarily want to um, frame the discussion for you or or box you in. I think what we're looking for would be um, just any sort of comments you have. Either it could be design standards, it could be uh, it could be related to height, um, but also as you as you think about the issue, just be mindful about hey, our goal really is to achieve. 400 units if possible. And in order to do that, um, you know, we would have to, there, there are going to be some taller buildings necessary. Um, well, um, the one drawback of taking this piecemeal is allowing the public to comment. Um, so uh, do you have any suggestions on how we should address that issue? Because typically we, the board asks questions and then we put it to the public to provide comments before we comment. So taking it piecemeal, it makes that, that approach a little bit more difficult. We can also take public comment. I Just on this yeah, particular This is issue. a workshop. Yeah, I, I, I would say this is a workshop. So, you know, chair and the rest of the board, if you feel like you want um, this would be a little bit less structured, like a public hearing. That's that's totally fine yeah. too. But also I mean, keep in mind that this is not the only opportunity. We can also, um, and and I also believe that as we talk about these issues a little bit more and dive into some of the details that um, that we're able to hone in on particular aspects. You know. Okay. Well, if there's no further questions, maybe that we should ask if there's any public comment on this particular uh, subject. Tom, I did have a question oh. if you don't oh, mind. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think Jen does too. Um, so I was gonna ask, uh, Alan, if you could, so in our packet, there's uh, the Park Street uh, corridor is divided into five districts. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit of a sort of a summary of where those districts start and stop and, and just kind of a broad overview of what they entail. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think uh, Board Member Sanchez, you are referring to the North Park Street District, right? Um, I'm just thinking I should, we should probably pull up a map. Well, that. and, and that's relating to the next item on the, on the list of subjects as well. Let's do that. Why don't I continue to just explain that and give everybody a little bit more of a background. So uh, why don't I stop share for now? Let's see what would be the best way to do this. Henry, I'm thinking we can pull up um, GovClarity and show our GIS map with the aerials. That might yeah, be helpful. Yeah, I'm thinking about that too. Let's see here. 
And while you're doing that, Alan, yes. I guess my question regarding that is, are those areas really specified in the in the documents? Like, I guess my concern is when something's just referred to as Park Street. I know we're trying to simplify things, but I think we really need to clarify which part of Park Street we're talking about since, you know, I think the whole consensus here is that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like, because there's a lot of preservation that we want for especially those streets, such as North Park Street, which I imagine is between, actually, I don't even know, but Webster, let's say we you talked about Central and Lincoln. Like, as soon as you said that, I, I immediately know what you're talking about. Central has Kroll's um, on that corner and that really cool bee feeder statue. And then Lincoln has on that, you know, I understand where those demarcations lie. So I guess my question is on, on the documentation, are those um, areas to the specificity of like which cross streets, is that pretty laid out or is that something we need to um, define? No, that's a very good question, Board Member Jones, and I'm glad you brought it up. So um, North Park Street is a separate zoning district, so we do call it out separately. It, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where these districts are. So, for example, if you're looking at the map now, the area of the North Park Street district is really, uh, you know, between Oak Street, both sides of Park Street and then Tilden and all the way up to the estuary. So that's really what's called the North Park Street District. And within it, you will see like five sub-districts. So, you know, zoning districts are, are kind of spread out over the city in various areas. So it's a little hard to pinpoint exactly what the location is. But if you look at the site's inventory, the site's inventory will be specific as to the address and location. So, but we have, yes, when we talk about, uh, when I talk about Park Street, I, I do mean the um, section of the historic core Park Street, section of Park Street that is south of Lincoln Avenue and really going all the way down to San Jose. That's the same zoning district. So you see on the map, CCT, that's what, when I say Park Street, that's really what we're referring to because, um, and the historic district, the National Register Historic District, really goes from Lincoln only up to Ensenal. So the um, the Jack in the Box, the Arco Station, really that that sets the boundary of the end at the end of the historic district. And when we talk about side streets, we're really talking about Santa Clara Avenue, Central Avenue, Alameda Avenue. And then also Ensenel. So those those are the areas what we call side streets. And then Henry, if you wouldn't mind zooming in to maybe the um, Bank of America site, Santa Clara and Park Street. Or even or even the CVS site across from City Hall. I mean, when I mentioned that the development opportunities are located on the side streets, really what I mean is when those are the opportunities. So there's a parking, big parking lot behind the Bank of America or what used to be the Bank of America building. Um, and even then, that's not a really large site. I mean, that site there is about 10 or 12,000 square feet. Um, the CVS parking lot, including where the build the CVS building is, is I, I'd say that's uh, 
approximately one acre. So, you know, I think when we think about um, development in the historic core, we also just need to recognize that um, these areas are typified by smaller sites. So with smaller sites, it's a little bit more constrained. I mean, I have seen a 42 unit residential condominium on a 5,000 square foot lot, but it's a seven story building and the units are maximum three to 400 square feet. We're talking about micro units, affordable housing, but I don't know that we're gonna be looking at that type of density. So typically on a small lot, you're not gonna see a big developer coming in and just building a small building. It would either be a, an existing property owner who wants to add more value to their property. Um, but even then the mathematics, the economics might not work out because if you're already owning, uh, like for example, Tucker's ice cream, I don't imagine the owners of Tucker ice cream wanting to add three or four stories above the building to, to add residential units. It, it just Economics just aren't really feasible there. Because once you factor in the cost of construction, building code requirements, upgrades, and all that, it just plus it puts I them think, out of business. Yeah, I just don't see new development really occurring along Park Street, but along the side streets, a lot of potential. So I'm probably going off on off on the tangent. Board Member Sanchez, did that question. answer your question? We got the the Gateway District, and we got the the Park Street Historic District. And there were three other districts or portions of Park Street. Uh, Actually, I haven't answered the questions about those five districts, uh, North Park Street. So here's how North Park Street, the North Park Street District is set up. Um, uh, kind of a little bit of background, North Park, Park Street, North of Lincoln, historically known as the auto row, a lot of auto-oriented businesses. You still see some used auto um, sales lots there and auto repair shops. Um, with the establishment of the district, North Park Street District, really the goal is to encourage sort of the continuation of the um, historic commercial core um, up all the way to the estuary. And so GD stands for the Gateway District, North Park Street Gateway Subdistrict. That's where we expect the most um, urban type of development to occur. We, we have a form-based zoning code that really, what that means is the zoning standards for new buildings are based on achieving a certain bulk height and size and interface with the buildings. So for example, um, new buildings within the Gateway GD district here has to have some form of ground floor commercial space, or at least there's some, some transparency within the first like 15 feet of the ground floor. So really we're setting it up so that it could be a retail type use, commercial use. Um, and then above it, you would have uh, residential uses. Um, is that mandated by the code or is it- That's in the be, code. Could it, be, could it be office space? Um, it, it could also be office space, yeah. But but the the minimum on the ground floor, you'd have to have transparency. Um, or if it's not building, it would have to be 
like a plaza or some open space where you could have a cafe with outdoor seating that would satisfy the requirement. So, um, and, and in the, uh, let's see, so we talked about gateway district, the WD district, really the workplace district. That's what, what we've tried to do in the North Park Street district is um, to set up this develop, uh, the, the zoning districts to be reflective of a lot of the existing uses. So um, in the workplace district, you do see a, a lot of shops, smaller shops, auto repair shops. It's kind of a, a mixture of different uses and the MU would be the mixed use district. And I think those are the areas where you still see some single family homes mixed in with some um, workshops or, or auto repair shops. Uh, the MM district up at the top there, that's, I believe that's the only site where it's a, uh, it's a warehouse, old warehouse or a machine shop. And I believe it's now being converted to um, either an R&D or biotech type of industrial use. And of course, uh, Bridgeside Shopping Center um, is within the workplace district. So, um, and I, there, there were some questions about why the Bridgeside Center is not part of the shopping center district. And the reason is because it's already covered under the North Park Street Workplace District. So there was not a need to also apply a separate shopping center designation to it. Similarly, the Park Street Landing um, is also the North Park Street. Are you um, talking district. about in reference to the, the possibility of having the shopping center sites be housing sites as well? Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. right, and and with that, staff has proposed a separate shopping center um, uh, set of zoning standards. Um, and in this case, we didn't incorporate, we didn't list these sites under the shopping center um, opportunity sites because these were already covered under the North Park Street District. May May I just ask what the R two PD district is? Just because I'm here, I've always been curious about that land there. Okay, yes. So R2 is uh, in one of our, our residential districts. The PD um, stands for plan development. So um, you can think of that as a uh, custom zoning district. Um, so under, under California planning and zoning law, cities can establish plan development districts to um, um, basically to, to to address unique situations. In this case, this is kind of a site that is triangular in shape. And so that would really require some, you know, uh, deviations from the zoning standards. It's not, a, it's not the same as a variance, but um, it allows custom design standards, custom development standards for the project um, to, to basically uh, to, to achieve that project. So that's what the PD stands for. And, and we've done a, a number of PDs over the years. Is that particular site uh, in any of the RENA calculations that are being considered right now? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. It is. Okay. Yeah. Currently, that PD allows for, I believe, 12 detached single family homes. So the city uh, would like to upzone that for, yeah. for more, more units. Okay. Other questions, board members? 
I'm not seeing any raised hands. Is it helpful to see the map and kind of have this discussion with Very, the map? Yeah, I, I think I'm so. Thinking, right, we could we could also zoom into Park Street if we want to talk about Park Street a little bit further. I had also thought about well, we could also do a uh, Google Street View um, walkthrough of parks. I don't know how that's going to um, play out on Zoom, but just a way you know, kind of as a way for us to see the actual district as we're talking about building heights and scale. Um, just some ideas to throw out there. Well, I, I think that I, I personally can talk about concepts of height um, without doing that. But what about other board members? Do you need to actually see it? Board member Witt? I don't, I, I don't, I don't think I need to see it. I, actually, I have Google map already open in a separate okay. window to just look. Um, but I, I wanted to just ask a clar clarifying question because I am not um, an architect. Um, what is the average height of a floor? I, it, it, lo it looks like it, de it depends, but because um, at some, some places it says, you know, a certain amount of feet versus a certain amount of um, floors. So I just wanted to ask, uh, what the what the difference is and the, is, is there an average um, that's it I could jump in and um, yeah, the experts I mean, it, on the board it, can also it varies offer depending on the use yeah it, it, it kind oh. of varies um, typical marketable I mean nowadays what you see on the market developers like to provide at least a nine foot ceiling mm -hmm. um, but you know you could get by with eight feet and that would still, you know, that, and to achieve an eight foot ceiling height on the interior, um, you probably want about 10 feet in between floors. That's kind of as a bare minimum. So the, the more comfort you want to provide the occupants, then the, the higher you go, but uh, average about 10 feet. And I'll let the ar architects on the board chime just in. Just to elaborate on that, I think that on the ground floor, typically it's a little higher. Oh, yes. And um, and on the ground floor, so the podium portion, the portion that's uh, that's reserved for commercial space, um, our city standards actually ask for a 15-foot ceiling. Yeah. Okay. Because when then, you walk into retail space, you do want to, to have that volume. And, and factoring in um, any sort of uh, uh, mechanical equipment serving that space, um, 15 is pretty much the, the minimum. It's a good standard, industry yeah. standard. And that's true of the other floors too. There's always mechanical systems that have to be distributed above or below, above the ceiling or below the floor. Right, so um, if, if staff might also add one more comment here. Um, so when you th think about a, multifamily building with ground floor commercial, you're starting with 15 feet for the ground floor. That's non-living space. That's just the ground floor commercial space. And if you want four stories on top, I mean, that's 55 feet, right? So when we talk about height limits of 60, that's recognizing that it's a five-story building. Um, you might count in um, mechanical structures above the roof, or maybe a little bit of a leeway to get, you know, each floor a nine foot ceiling instead of eight foot ceiling, because that's what the market um, is, is demanding. So that's how we come up with the 60 foot height limit. 
Um, I had a general question. Um, I don't know if this is the proper time to talk about it. So feel free to um, table it till later. But just in general, you know, all of this comes back in my mind to like the read in numbers and, you know, just making sure we're, you know, proving to the state that we have enough housing. And so I think I'm, but uh, there was a mention of like a 15 to 30% buffer and SB, is it 166 or 16 or? I believe it's 166. 166. 166. No, it's called the no net loss law. No net loss. Okay. Um, And I guess uh, my concern is that, you know, Alameda is an island and, uh, you know, every eight years there's going to be more and more, uh, you know, asked of our city to provide housing. At least that's how I understand it. And so um, do you, do you feel like we're kind of trying to stay conservative with our numbers? Um, is the buffer something that we really have to include or is it something that, you know, we, there's like other incentives that I'm not aware of as far as, you know, is it, I mean, and, and is there any kind of consequence as the state reviews our initial, um, uh, findings or initial proposal where they can come back and say, actually, Alameda, like, good try, but you're going to need to provide more numbers. So I guess in my mind, wouldn't it be prudent to be really conservative with our um, ability to kind of meet those rated numbers to a certain extent and then see what the city or the state has to say? That, yeah, that, that's, a, that's another very good question, Board Member Jones. And um, it, it kind of gets to the point there's there's public comment about doing the bare minimum needed to beat the Reno. Just do five three five three five thousand three hundred fifty three. No more, no less. Um, but here's what the no net loss law says. It says during the planning period. So so the planning period is the eight years that we're we're doing this housing element for. The city of Alameda has to maintain this sites inventory available for housing development. And what no net loss means here is, well, if, if that R2 PD site that uh, board member Witt had appointed to, if we said that that should be 30 units and it needs to be 30 units on that site in order to meet the arena of 5353, and yet a project comes in and does only 20, we immediately will need to look for another site to make up for those 10 units. That's what no net loss means. And, and the state through its, so through its um, housing element annual report. So every year during the planning period, the city of Alameda would have to submit an annual report to HCD showing our progress in meeting the Reno. And so if at any point that happens and technically we're, I feel like the city would have to talk about zoning new sites again. So the more we fall behind, then um, the the onus would be on the city to do more work to f- try to make up for the arena. So the so the re- purpose of the buffer really is to say, okay, if on that site where we envisioned thirty units actually only came out to be twenty, at least we could rely on the buffer to tell HCD that no, yes, on this site we built twenty instead of thirty, but at least we still have all of this land reserved 
zone for housing by right. So we don't have to immediately zone land to make up for those 10 units. So that's really the consequence. God, that's so helpful. And I have a follow-up question to that. So it sounds like I was trying to understand how we prove to the city or the state that we are in fact keeping up with our, you know, um, our proposal, our plan to increase housing. But um, I'm still kind of unsure about how to prove that without being on the hook to really implement that. So for instance, like we can calculate how many projected ADUs there might be, and that's part of the arena numbers, but we cannot actually, do we, is there some sort of like every, the annual report you're talking about, like, do we give those numbers and make sure they, that's how we do that? So yes. all, every property that is part of the 5353 plus minus the buffer, I guess it's plus the buffer if needed, um, needs to be accounted for. Yeah, I mean, so the annual report doesn't have a site-by-site -site inventory, mm -hmm. but it, it has questions. There's a table. I mean, we have to report the number of building permits we've issued, right? Um, the, uh, and the affordable, affordability levels. And then there will be questions about, um, there will be questions about the no, that gets to the no net loss provisions. So, so the, the state is um, in the last few years in response to the housing crisis, not only passed a lot of new laws mandating what we have in the housing element, but it's also added a lot more controls in the reporting. So it's, it's the whole system that we're really um, responding, the whole framework that we're responding to at the state level. Thank you. That was really helpful. Well, since we're um, getting into the discussion about RENA so deeply, can you comment a little bit about the RENA numbers that they seem to be shifting? Um, the, the tallies that were proposed for the residential neighborhoods were, were, were 270 or something in that order. And now there are 400 and or more. And, and so the, the numbers are kind of shifting around. I want, can you talk a little bit about what's happening that caused those numbers to shift? Yeah, I, you know, we're, we're always trying to, we're, we're fine tuning the numbers. We're also um, trying to talk to property owners and developers about uh, potential and opportunities um, because we recognize that when our housing element gets submitted to HCD, they're going to be scrutinizing the inventory to make sure that there is uh, one, it's a, a legitimately viable housing site. It's zoned for housing. It allows the densities. The development standards are set up for that possibility for the number of units that the city is projecting. And if it's also a piece of property that hasn't been developed in a, many years, we would also need to explain to HCD that why does the city of Alameda now think it's a housing opportunity? So what Alameda has done and and you know, this is no secret. Developers caught wind of this and some of them interested in redevelopment are reaching out to the city with letters. So um, where we have a, develop a property owner writing the city a letter saying, hey, I own this property. It's zoned um, mixed use. I do intend to build 100 units on the site. So when we recognize that, hey, that's actually a possibility, um, we would 
we would ask for the letter or we would get the letter and that letter is becomes our proof to HCD that yes, this is a legitimate site. Look, there's a willing property owner who's 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 going to build it um, if we set up the standards to allow it. So that's in many ways one of the reasons how we're finding the numbers with the R districts and ADUs. I know those yeah. numbers have 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 shifted. Um, it's also because we've been talking to HCD about how we're about our methodology, how we're coming up with the projections, specifically with numbers like ADUs. I know previously we had projected like seventy units per year. Well, the sort of seventy units was because staff was very optimistic because last year we actually had I think seventy nine. ADU permits issued. But HCD says, no, you actually need to average out your past three years. And so when we went back and averaged out the past three years, the first year was really about 20 units. So that really, that meant we had to refine our projections down, back down to 50 units per, per year. So with ADUs, instead of projecting you know, many more um, like 500 units, we're, we're now really realistically down to like 380 or, or, um, or 400. Ellen, kind of, I, oh, go ahead. Just because you're on the topic, um, can you ever challenge HCD? Because, um, you know, I heard uh, the argument as far as like the ADUs were concerned, it's sort of a linear thing that we're experiencing. I mean, granted, a, the whole growth cycle, not an averaging. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, 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 so is something that HCD is telling all all regions of California or specific to Alameda, like do their policies have to be like kind of overarching of the whole state or can they like work with us on a regional basis? Yeah, so um, I think Director Thomas at your last meeting had explained that we have the benefit of um, going second after Southern California. So a lot of Southern, Southern California cities did their housing element updates um, just last year. And so uh, we're, we're finding very consistent comments from HCD around those same issues. So no, I don't think, I don't think the city's position should be that we should challenge HCD. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there isn't a formal process of challenging. It would, I don't know, maybe a lawsuit. <laughs> I, I don't even want to go there, but um, it, it's not in the best interest to, um, and I don't even know that there is a process for, for the city to, to challenge state law, but um, I, I think our approach is to um, understand how other cities in Southern California have, have responded to the state law, how H, what, understand what HCD specifically looks for, uh, look at their comments, look at how other cities have addressed the comments, and then um, try to proceed that way. Board Member Lau, do you have a question? Yeah, I have a question. Actually, referred to uh, Alan just mentioned about earlier. Yeah, you try, I think planning department tried to do is uh, develop the north side of the uh, Park Street, right? We just sold the map to us. However, I, I feel may not work that way. The reason why I, I feel that is because first is a lot for very small lot in that area. And the traffic is very crazy, meaning like you cannot even stop the car there. Like example, when you, when you try to come in from Oakland side to go back to like the Alameda using Park Street, I mean, go for the north side on that. Like even though you cannot stop because the car is so many traffic every day. Um, so I, 
I know you try to develop and try to develop the D, uh, GD area. And is it, I mean, like, you, at least you need to, uh, like, sample, you want to try to develop that, like, make use, right? You like, well, um, maybe up, up level is like residential, down, down level is like the a retail or something. Even though you don't have a very small lot, like most of the owner own a very small lot, even though you cannot park the car, even though stop the car. So, I mean, how you try to solve that problem? I know it's a good area. I mean, the location, right? I really support that. I feel it's good. You try to develop in that because when you try to come into Alameda, that's ugly. So, I, I like it, but how you want to solve that problem? Yeah, so specifically about site access, um, you know, the, the projects that we have seen on Park Street, they often to happen to be on the, um, on the corners. And um, so we would utilize the side streets for driveway access. So we, we, would, we would create new driveways on, um, on Park Street. How about the so log is so side small? Streets. Um, how, you, side, how you, yeah, the log side is very small. Each one like owned by a lot of individual. And uh, if you try to develop that, I mean, I mean, I feel it's like difficult to do. Well, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we've, we've seen, um, we've had a hotel project approved on Park Street and Clement. So that access is uh, along Clement. We've also had proposals for some of the smaller lots um, and the access would also be on side streets. So um, I think the, the benefit of some of the sites that are available is that they are corner lots. Um, I mean, and, and we would see, I mean, I think that's where height limits also come into play. So but do you have a, limit? a smaller lot, on a smaller lot, potentially you can do, I mean, I, I kind of mentioned there's an example of a 5,000 square foot lot with 42 units, seven stories. I mean, it's, it's not unheard of. I mean, it's, it is, it is viable, but um, the question is how, how much development would the city allow on those sites and, and um, what, what requirements would the city uh, impose in terms of addressing sensitivity to adjacent uses? But do you have a minimum lock site for development in that area? Minimum lock site, like you just mentioned about 5,000 or something? Uh, Park, I don't know that we have minimum lot sizes in the North Park Street. 5,000 square feet, I believe, is the current citywide standard, but um, through a PD district, we, we have allowed smaller lots. So that, that can vary. But you think it's still possible to do that in that way? Yeah, it all comes down to height limits and development standards, setbacks. Those are all, you know, if you think about a 5,000 square foot lot, how much setback the city requires affect how much is developable. The height limit is, is key. I think the other thing that um, is important to think about is on a smaller site, the more constraints you have, the more, the more it hurts the feasibility of the project. So uh, maybe another way to, to, to put it is to justify new development on a smaller site to make a, 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 a pro development project economically feasible, you probably need to allow them to build more, right? It's sort of economies of scale. So, you know, a, a, I don't think a developer would would um, can feasibly build a three-story multifamily building, and that that's just not 
possible in this economy. Board member Sanchez. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, board member Lau, that to, to your question, uh, like McGee's, I don't know if you're familiar with McGee's pub, um, has you know it has two stories of how of apartments above right and that that's a tight narrow site um so i think what is being proposed and what the city is trying to do in in the plan is to say okay if you took a building like that and you were able to go up an additional two stories then you have four stories of housing over one story of retail on that same site it, it's feasible, right? I, I think your point about when you start trying to accommodate car traffic and parking and all of that, then it becomes more difficult. But I think the idea, if I, as I understand it from the housing elements, is to say, well, if you allow someone to build higher on that corridor, then some of those sites that are tight start to become feasible. Is that, am I saying that right, Alan? Yeah. I, mm -hmm. Any other questions? Well, I well, don't, I mean, so I have one last, I mean, one question though, is, um, sorry about it, for the, uh, for the, I don't actually, I don't know when I read the um, document, I don't understand what they mean exactly. Like you, you mentioned about uh, something called share living um, for the commercial. Do you mind to give me some idea? Think of it as an SRO. It's, it's a, um, a single room occupancy um, type of, of living situation and you know i know sros have had historically you know negative connotations but but really it's um there's a lot of uh new housing models that that uh new housing developments that follow that model basically you have um occupants sharing i mean they may have their individual rooms but think of it as a dormitory a dorm i mean it's the dorm style living i mean there there's uh, increasingly, there are uh, developers interested in in uh, providing that type of housing. Maybe, yes, I'm, sure. maybe, I, maybe I'm reading wrong. I, um, well, the question I have is like, maybe I'm reading wrong. Is it you allow it in the commercial, the bottom unit, meaning the the the, the ground floor? Ground floor. Yeah, uh, is it you mean? Uh, maybe I'm maybe reading wrong, but uh, I just want to get some idea. Yeah, no, and, and those aren't individual it's not an individual unit. You can almost think of it as a hotel, a building that's that's designed for that purpose. So um, we actually actually we actually had a project that uh, on Webster Street um, that was approved for shared living. The the design had a ground floor uh, cafe and um, I believe what three stories above of shared living spaces. So I think there were like maybe sixteen rooms. Where occupants would share a room, they would share bathroom facilities and a and have a common kitchen. So okay. almost almost like a hotel, but like long-term stay hotel. Yeah. Not in the ground floor. Basically, you're on the Not top the ground of the, floor. Okay, got mm -hmm. it, got it. Okay, thanks. Okay, I'm not seeing any raised hands. Well, I, I just so we have a chance to comment here tonight, um, I'd like to bring in the public comments uh, at this point. So if there's any public speakers that would like to address the board regarding the general topics of the RENA numbers that we've been discussing, the uh, height limits on the historic districts and the North Park Street um, zone, 
I think those are the three primary things we've discussed right now. Um, uh, I'd like to let Web that go forward. Go ahead. Also, uh, yeah, yeah, we Webster have, Street. Uh, Webster Street, lots of historic yeah. districts, Park and Webster Street. Mm -hmm. We have two people waiting now. Uh, the first to speak will be Christopher Buckley. Okay. Hey, Christopher Buckley with Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. Uh, how much time do I have? Do I, will I get to speak again after you go into the other topics, or is this going to be? My plan is to have the to break it up into separate topics. So yes, if we're going to discuss other things, we'll bring in more comments. Okay, and how much time do I have for uh, this round of comments? Five minutes. Great, thank you. Um, so a couple of things. I'm just going to try to respond to what's been said so far. Uh, clarification on whether to what degree there's zoning standards in the housing element. Actually, there are. The height limits for Park Street and Webster Street are called out in the current draft housing element. Basically says five stories for both Park Street and Webster Street. So if the idea is not to have those kinds of standards in the housing element itself, it might be good to remove those types of standards. There's also a provision of a 20 per, to get rid of the 20% side yard cumulative setback standard. Um, there was also a comment about how um, you know, how the districts should, should look, the historic districts. Uh, and Alan, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because uh, that gets into the question of the objective design standards or discretionary design standards. And related to whether it's discretionary versus objective design standards, I'd like to call your attention to the state density bonus law uh, which for density bonus projects, as I think you know, um, the developer can ask for an, for an increase over the buy right height limit. And so these, this height limit discussion that we've been having needs to take into account the possible impact of density bonus projects. And if you're doing a density bonus project um, and certain other types of uh, housing, uh, you don't need to follow the city's design review manual. You instead are subject to the objective design standards which on our end, we think need further work. There's, uh, some, um, there's some soft spots in there that we think need to be beefed up. So the city really needs to revisit those objective design standards so that the city is really ready for uh, these state mandated type projects that uh, required objective design standards. The, uh, we're really, really glad to hear that staff is looking at a 40 foot height limit for the historic parts of Webster Street and sounds like maybe Park Street, at least within the National Register District. Uh, that's, that's great. Um, as far as we're concerned, APS is concerned, 60 feet, particularly the northern parts of Park and Webster is fine. Would like to qualify though the historic portion of Park Street, the west side of Park Street between Buena Vista and Lincoln. So it's got a couple of pretty significant historic buildings there, uh, namely McGee's and also the so-called Silver Building or Fossing Building, very nice Italianate um, commercial structure. Uh, on the corner of Pacific. Um, there's, uh, also, um, there's also mention of the Bridgeside Shopping Center as a development site, but that's not listed on the sites in Appendix E as possible development sites. So that's a kind of a question for Alan, would that be put in there? Uh, similarly, the uh, Park Street Landing site is not included there. So maybe those two sites should be looked at if, if staff thinks there's some possibilities there. And uh, I did have a screen share um, concerning North Park Street, um, which was up here momentarily, but seems to have disappeared. Can that screen share be put up again? 
this is a, a residential area of North, within the North Park Street area. And one of the problems with the housing element, the zoning that's being currently presented, it kind of just lumps, it doesn't really address the, the residential areas, the extensive residential areas, North Park Street, which are among Alameda's most historic neighborhoods. In our letter, we attached a report by Judith Lynch, former HAB member that talks about some of these. And uh, the proposal now is for unlimited density there, which makes them subject to density bonus projects, among other things, and also height limit increases. And uh, we think that, and there's really two key portions of the North Park Street area subject to this, the one, the residential part, which this is part, and also the mixed use uh, sub-district, which contains, uh, there's a lot of residential buildings there, you know, Im important ones, historically valuable ones. And uh, so we're asking that those height limit increases proposed there, um, you know, not be included and also the density uh, be something other than unlimited density. That means every single parcel will be eligible for a density bonus project here. I would also, um, and just carrying, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but all, a lot of this is interrelated. Uh, for density bonus projects, a uh, alternative that AAPS has submitted is to allow an unlimited number of ADUs within the buy right building envelope um, as an alternative to a density bonus project. And you get as many units in there you want, and that will not trigger a density bonus project if all these units are ADUs. And uh, this would might be a very well suited for North Park Street as an old, the residential areas here and possibly the other areas as an alternative to what's now being currently proposed. I've uh, run out of my five minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Buckley. Was there another speaker? Yes, uh, Karen Bay. Yeah, I unmute it. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, my name is Karen Bay. I'm a resident of Alameda for almost 40 years and I live on the West End. So uh, I would, that this is my first time ever calling in to one of the um, historical board meetings. So my first time. I, well, thank you. Nice to have an opportunity to talk to you. Um, I'd like to talk about and focus on Webster Street. I live on the West End. Um, I am a little concerned, actually a lot concerned about reducing the height limit um, on Webster Street. From, reducing it? Well, when increasing, I, increasing the height limit. Well, no, I want, I, I like the 50 foot. Oh, okay. Five stories. All right. Um, and I'm gonna explain why. Um, so I consider the Central Avenue area to the Lincoln Street area I consider that a high resource area. Uh, it's got tons of shops and restaurants. It's a five minute walk to the AC bus stop, which makes it a major transportation corridor. And we've got a wonderful site in this area, the Neptune Plaza Shopping Center. That's a, what I consider a large site op development opportunity. Um, and if we, do all these things, reduce the height limit, you know, the setback requirements and all this, we could, we could kill this potential development project, which I understand at one point that he had submitted, the owner had submitted, you know, uh, shown some develop interest in developing his site. So we could potentially kill the one project that could 
that could work. Uh, the SRO that you spoke about, um, Alan, that project never got developed because it was not feasible. Um, so this site is feasible uh, if, we can, if we have the right development standards. If you change them, then we could kill it. And I'm concerned that there won't be any development on the West End, on the Webster Street corridor. And it would shift to the North Park Street district where the height limit is five stories. And in, and in my reading, it could even be allowed to go higher than five stories. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's fair to those of us that wanna see more development on the West End or especially in the Webster Street corridor. I think it's gonna help Webster Street. Actually, it's gonna increase traffic, uh, foot, you know, foot traffic and more people to go to the restaurants and shops. So I don't, I don't wanna do anything to kill that project. So I, 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 you know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm speaking out of turn and for reducing it to force, you know, 40 feet, it's not gonna kill the project. But at one point we were gonna raise, we were gonna increase the height limits on Webster Street to match Park Street. And I remember the owner speaking out about that, that that would support his project. So um, that's a very, that's a, that's a major concern for me. Um, and again, I don't wanna, I wanna make sure we have the opportunity to, to develop Webster Street as much as you do on Park Street or the North Park Street district. So that's, that's why, I, uh, why I called. Uh, so hopefully um, you can address that concern. Um, I would really appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Are there any other speakers? There are no more public speakers. Okay, great. Well, bringing it back to the board then, uh, would anybody like to uh, offer some comments at this point? Board Member Sanchez. So maybe this is a, a, a clarification question for staff. Uh, so to Mr. Buckley's point about um, ADUs, this came up at, our, at the last meeting and um, and I saw the letter that was provided by Myers and Nave, and I'm just not sure I'm understanding the difference between how unlimited ADUs could be achieved and how that differs from these uh, state bonus density laws. So are you able to shed some light on that, Alan, that, that could help yeah. us understand? I, I, I'll, I'll do my best to try to explain the, uh, the situation. And Henry, feel free to jump in too if you have any ideas. So um, uh, let me first of all describe what density bonus is. So under state law, uh, there's a provision in state law that says, hey, if your developer, if the developer is developing a residential project and they offer a um, certain amount of uh, affordable housing projects based on the affordability or the number of units that they're providing, they may request a density bonus, right? So basically it's to give them a credit, right? In order, it's to give the developer um, 
a higher number of market rate units that they could develop to then subsidize the affordable units because that's really how the economics work, right? So you could just simply think of it as, hey, if you're going to do a little bit more affordable housing, you can, you can do more units in your project. As part of that, you may also request for waivers. And those waivers come in the form of basically exceptions to the city's rules for development. Uh, a common one, or, or actually how Alameda has done multifamily development in recent years, and it's really the only reason how we've allowed it under Article 26 is an, a waiver from the multifamily prohibition. The concern that Mr. Buckley is raising here is, yes, Alameda, even if you set a height limit of five stories or 60 feet, a developer with, with uh, a density bonus waiver could build a building or, or request a waiver the height limit to get a taller building. In reality, that's possible. And given the you know density bonus figures, we project yes, okay, if maybe a five-story building would become a six-story building. So, and you know, these um, the the developer has to show us that the um, the waiver. If the city doesn't grant the waiver, that they cannot physically fit the number of units within their development standards. That's actually another important piece of background info is, is the purpose of the waiver is because the city's rules prohibit um, the developer from actually building those that number of units. And that's a lot of under the density bonus. So um, that's the concern. And I, you know, maybe a way to describe. Um, what Mr. Buckley is suggesting is an attempt to maybe reverse engineer that math so that, okay, if we're going to expect all developers to ask for a bonus, maybe we set the height limit at four stories, anticipating that they will do five. And, you know, from, from a staff point of view, maybe that's really not the best approach to setting standards. I mean, I mean, the purpose of state law is, is to allow developers to exceed the standards to fit the unit. So to try to reverse engineer seems to be kind of going in a diff different direction. But um, with particular with ADUs, I think that that's also very problematic because uh, by definition, ADUs cannot be sold separately. So we're only talking about 100% rentals. Um, and I also, you know, just staff, we talked about this too amongst ourselves. We, we find it, I mean, this Myers Nave law firm believes that they developer wouldn't be eligible for state density bonus, but I I would I don't know that HCD would buy into that <laughs> that the city's housing program for the next years is completely reliant on ADUs, um, you know. I, yeah, I mean, the, the way that I understood it, they're, they're basically saying that, that yes, we, we could provide unlimited ADUs versus um, as a, maybe as an incentive to avoid um, developers applying for the density bonus, right? But it does say that we couldn't prohibit it. In other words, they would still by law have the right to apply for the density bonus if they so chose chose to go that way i guess what i'm trying to understand is just the logic behind 
if I'm a develop room and I'm allowed to build horror stories and those horror stories net me, let's say four units to keep it simple, right? The allowance of an unlimited number of ADUs is saying that we would try to squeeze 10 units into those same four stories. Is that, is that the logic? And I'm, I'm just trying no, to understand. I think, I, and I see. can the ADU yeah, so be classified as ADUs? I mean, the definition of an ADU is that you have a primary structure and then you have an unlimited number of units to follow, right? So I'm just trying to understand how that logic pencils out because I'm not quite getting. Yeah, okay, okay, no, uh, thank you for explaining. So um, the idea of ADUs is because by definition with an ADU ordinance, I mean, a number of things, you wouldn't be subject to inclusionary therefore you wouldn't be eligible to request for a density bonus and therefore you would have to basically play by alameda rules so if i'm a developer i would i could propose one primary dwelling and with and and hypothetically if there's unlimited number of adus i would do three more adus one each story get you know four story building and um the idea would be even if one of the units were uh, affordable, I wouldn't qualify for uh, a fifth unit, 20%, let's just say 20% density, but I wouldn't qualify for that. And I would not be able to request a waiver from the city from a four foot, a four story height limit to get a five story. I think that that's generally the idea. Um, again, a lot of problems with that, you know, I mean, we wouldn't be getting ADUs, we wouldn't be, uh, how would we impose an inclusionary requirement? I, I, I feel like with the ADU, the ADU, the unlimited ADU concept is a good one, but it can't be our only solution to meet the arena. The state HC, I could bet this HCT will, will immediately see through the intentions and will say no to that. You know, um, ADUs, I mean, that could be one solution. I mean, I, I kind of like the idea of unlimited ADUs in existing multifamily buildings. In fact, I think that's one of the, uh, that might be in our proposed um, ADU ordinance amendment already. There's a lot of benefits to that. We have a lot of soft story buildings that haven't had any improvements to them. And so if we were able to convert the parking spaces in the soft story apartment buildings to ADUs, and that might provide incentive to those apartment building owners to not only seismically secure those buildings, but also add units. So unlimited ADUs is a good idea. It just can't be our sole, our only solution for meeting the arena in the art districts. I would just add that it, it might limit the type of developers that would come in to the city in these areas too, whether be an apartment developer or a condominium developer because um, ADUs are limited to um, just rental. Yeah, and I, I, I would also believe that if the city's solution to arena is only ADUs, there, yeah, I, I just can't see that happening. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot of, there would be a lot of problems. Okay. Size, height. I mean, yeah, we would have to basically open up our ADU ordinance so that they they practically function as 
typical housing units. Okay, thank you. So would anyone like to, uh, going back to Alan's original question about the, the Webster Street and Park Street historic districts, uh, comment on the proposal uh, regarding the height limits in those areas? Nobody's jumping in, so go ahead, Alan. Mayor <laughs> Saxby, uh, would it be okay if I maybe jumped in and answer some of the questions that were brought up by the speakers? It, it kind of gets into the uh, discussion about Webster Street and height limits and all that. Um, I think, first of all, um, uh, Mr. Buckley had mentioned that in the housing element, we do speci specify the height limits. Uh, that is true. I, I do want to clarify that. The reason being in our description of the programs, we can't just write to HCD that yes, we're upzoning without really adding on some details. So, so we we did um, we we are telling HCD that in our upzoning, we are creating capacity by increasing height limits, and that's one of the most fundamental things about you know height means more volume, more building volume, more building volume. You can accommodate more units, and so that's that's the logic there. Um, Bridgeside Center, the reason why that's uh, not specifically included on the list is um, when we looked at a lot of the shopping centers, uh, Bridgeside in particular is um, has separate ownership. Knob Hill is owned by Knob Hill. The other commercial buildings, I believe, are owned by other owners. The gas station um, is owned by another owner. We just find it a little bit – we just don't believe that these owners would, would – comes into agreement to redevelop the site with mixed-use residential. So therefore, um, we didn't list it. Um, and then just kind of the question about uh, Webster Street and the height limits. Um, again, just to clarify my earlier remarks, um, we have heard um, Waba's comments about preserving the sort of the historic portion, but and staff is exploring that. Um, we're, we're not fixated and we're not proposing to limit it to three stories yet, um, particularly because um, there are sites within uh, along Webster Street between Central and Lincoln that we see as development sites. The, the Taylor lot, for example, we city had approved a mixed use project. It was limited to nine units, probably not enough, but that occurs in the middle of that um, stretch of Webster Street. Um, the U.S. Bank site, former U.S. Bank site, is another property that's that's available. We're getting a lot of developer inquiries on it. Um, and then, you know, just looking at an area there, the uh, is the dollar store and the parking lot adjacent to it, another opportunity site. And and um, Speaker Bay mentioned the Neptune Plaza, which we were thinking Neptune Plaza is probably treated as. Um, just south of the historic core and maybe not part of it. So um, we're we're trying to wrap our heads around this and kind of looking for the board's board's um, comments. I mean, we'd love to see the Taylor lot and the U.S. Bank site redeveloped. I mean, those are really good opportunity sites. Um, but how how do we do it in a way that is sensitive to the historic buildings? And I would end my comments there. Okay, thank you, Board Member Witt. So I, uh, so Webster Street is my street. I'm on, I'm on that end. And so I think, um, I think my questions are, 
what I would like to see Webster Street protected the same way that Park Street is on in, as a historic on the historical register. Um, do you know why it's not it's not been added, and and how can we how could we make that so so we can protect that core part of it? Um, I, just because of its historic relevance to 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 Alameda. I mean, you, you know, it was a place for Neptune Beach, and so I'd like to see it just as you know that highly valued as as Park Street because I think we're going to see as when the base starts to to develop people aren't going to want to go all the way across the island. They're going to go directly to Webster street. It's going to be, it's going to be, take a much more central role, I think than it is now. And so I would like to see that protected. Well, there's an application process that you have to go through okay. to, to get a district declared mm -hmm. um, and quite a bit of research that goes into preparing that kind of a, a document. Uh, and then it goes to the state for review. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and first, in fact, that could be done at any time. Go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but um, yeah, first starting with uh, establishing a context statement. Mm -hmm. Is there, and also um, what's the sort of period of significance? Is, is there, I mean, you look at Webster Street it, it, and the buildings that are there, it, it probably reflects kind of uh, many diff, diff, different time periods, right? Starting with Kroll's, probably the older building, and then mm -hmm. you've got development in the 20s and 30s and 40s just kind of all mixing together so um, it's a good question I, right. I don't know why that wasn't uh, nominated previously but you know a historian today could probably reassess it and perhaps come up with a context and then its relationship to Neptune Beach you know because Neptune Beach is no longer existing you know really shouldn't be the focus of that kind of a uh, application right. mm -hmm. um well, I'm going to I'm going to try to get a comment in here. We've had a lot of questions, and um, I'm sure there's there'll be more. But when I was reading in the um, these changes that are reflected in the housing element in the discussion of Park Street and Webster Street was the discussion of setbacks for additional floors, and I, I think it's really important in an historic district to preserve the character of that district. And you know that new development needs to respect the existing patterns of development. And that would mean roof shape, building height, massing, proportions, even window openings really to, to properly preserve the character of a district. And so I think it's important to establish a height limit such as 40 feet. Um, we're talking, I guess, it's, it's already higher in Park Street, but 40 feet in the historic district portions of Park Street and, and Webster Street. And then I have, I personally have no objection to height increases beyond that, as long as there are setbacks created so that it minimizes the impact of the additional stories uh, on the visibility from the street level. And I know, I think that some of the documentation I saw refers to like a 15 foot setback um, for um, beyond the fourth floor. And that's a good, that seems like a good starting point, but really it's about sight lines um, from across the street and whether or not you can um, build additional floors without starting to really change the character of, of these, the height uh, being apparent from across the street at, at, the, at the street level, not, not at upper levels. So I, I actually support 
that approach to new development in the historic districts. I think we can achieve higher buildings. We can establish uh, sort of an historic height limit of, of 40 feet, say just for the point of discussion, and, and then allow step backs to uh, increase that height limit. Um, and then in, in areas uh, of Park Street and Webster Street, where, which are not historic, then I think um, we can look at increased height limits that make uh, additional uh, taller buildings feasible. Um, so that's kind of where I come down on that. Uh, I think it gets kind of tricky, uh, you know, looking at the picture that Chris Buckley put up um, of that North Park Street area where we have, I mean, that's, that's probably the old, one of the oldest residential neighborhoods, if not the oldest residential neighborhood in Alameda. A lot of buildings from the 1870s, 80s. Um, and as the picture showed, so right behind the marketplace, there's one story, very small one story buildings. And so how do you allow a six story or 60 foot height limit along the main court or Park Street without impacting those residential areas? That's, that would be a five story step down basically. And if I understood Alan correctly, earlier describing the step-down process that it's actually the envelope is determined by what's allowed on a site, not what's physically existing on a site. So the, the, what's allowed on that site might be 30 feet or 35 feet and 45 feet, uh, degree slope up from that to the next um, allowable height is still a, a significant three, four story difference between a one story building and what's allowed. So I'm not sure how to resolve that, I, but I am concerned about it having a negative impact on that particular neighborhood, which is historic and um, is probably not getting its, its due credit um, for being so. Um, so those are a couple thoughts there. The, the, and then another question I had um, regarding the arena is um, I still haven't heard anything uh, discussion about the uh, Naval Air Station. Is there any development on uh, develop or allowing additional housing on that site to help meet our arena goals? Because we have a lot of potential yeah, so building and uh, developable sites there, or not sites, the buildings themselves could be used right. for housing. So, so two quick remarks on that. One is um, where it requires negotiating with the Navy, federal government, large agency, large bureaucracy. It's not going to happen overnight, but um, the city is pursuing that. Second Good. thing is um, we can't put all of our eggs in one basket. So we've heard public comment saying, hey, let's just put all the new housing, 5,300 units out at Alameda Point. It's not going to, you're not going to have any issues with sensitivity with existing neighborhoods. There's a lot of land out there doesn't work because it's law that we have to affirmatively further fair housing, AFFH. And what that means is we have to take a look at our past city policies, zoning practices, development practices, and encourage just more of a wider fair distribution of, of housing opportunities throughout the city, not put affordable housing all in the West End, for example, which has been the trend because that's where there's available land. And, you know, when you look at the trends, a lot of affordable housing happens on the West End. 
So HCD is not going to buy into a proposal that all the new housing is on one end of the city. So we have to create the opportunities everywhere in the city, including the residential neighborhoods. Well, that, I know that would be just a traffic nightmare as well uh, on the West End. Uh, but my thought is that we're that we're considering, and we haven't discussed this yet, but we're considering sort of um, what I would call drastic upzoning of the residential neighborhoods to accommodate a fairly small number of housing units. And you know, upzoning is a is is a very difficult thing to reverse, and we're getting very little benefit from it, and potentially uh, a large negative impact from it. And um, but if you have the additional opportunity sites like um, the Naval Air Station that could easily accommodate 400 units, um, then that removes some of that pressure from the residential neighborhoods and the proposed upzoning. So that's that's why I asked that question. Um, and, and Chair Saxby, I think that is a good question. And it just reminded me to make an important point. And I think when um, people think about they're just hearing city, the city is upzoning our, our districts, our residential neighborhoods. They may be imagining big developers coming in, building gigantic buildings in their neighborhood. In reality, that's not what staff is thinking. In reality, because we've done design review for 40 years in the city, what we see are really, what we really mean by upzoning the art districts is really to make it a little bit easier for um backyard infill development, really, you know, more like ADUs, but maybe more than that, maybe backyard duplexes. So um, we're looking at properties where people have sizable backyards, where they're willing to add another unit or two and still have space for backyard. There aren't that many sites in the art districts where a homeowner would be willing to do that. And I think in with construction costs nowadays, we're really thinking about when we talk about upzoning the art districts, we're really relying on our Alameda property owners, our homeowners to be able to add units to accommodate extended families, for example. This is maybe just furthering the ADU concept, but to say, hey, maybe there could be a third unit in the backyard where it's rented to somebody who can provide some supplemental income to offset that cost of living here. But so, I think you're, but you're also opening the door to real estate developers and um, loosening the rules with which they had to, with which with they could develop and, and which they could take advantage of state density bonus laws. And so you're really potentially having a negative impact on these neighborhoods. It's not just mom and pop, you know, developers, that's especially, true. you know, when you, when you lo loosen up zoning laws, then uh, real estate developers notice. I won't argue that, but um, okay. I, I think also just another point there, I think um, public speakers, not, not tonight, but have mentioned concern about demolition of existing buildings. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we have, as you know, we have demo, our preservation ordinance is essentially a demolition control ordinance, right? Yeah, but it's a fairly uh, weak ordinance. We have the ability to say no to the demolition. Yeah, so. but it could be overridden, overridden by council. It's, it's a very weak ordinance. Um, other comments? Board Member Sanchez? Yeah, so I think um, just 
to sort of circle back with the the original request by staff that we give feedback, I I would tend to agree with Chair Saxby that the overall um, approach of having a step back, you know, increased height with a step back um, in order to preserve the character in the historic corridors seems appropriate. I think that um, I tend to lean a little bit more towards being more aggressive in terms of height and the um, in the Northern Park Street District, I, only because I feel like it um, it is the gateway to Alameda, and I feel like it, it, it maybe in that area um, we have a little bit more opportunity to to increase the height. And um, although I don't uh, want to underestimate the the value of some of the historic elements that are within that area, it feels like there's some opportunity there, but. Generally, I, I agree with Chair Saxby's comment about that. I think the strategy of stepping back away from uh, from the public facing uh, street uh, is a good strategy for achieving higher, you know, multiple stories without uh, totally losing the character. I think that's that's a good strategy. I think that um, you know, again, the idea of having the rear where it's abutting a residential zone, um, similar to the one that Chair Saxby was pointing out, I think that also would help. Um, I would imagine that in that particular example that you mentioned, which is the, the photo that Mr. Buckley showed, where you have those very historic homes backing onto the marketplace, I would imagine that there, if a project was being proposed that had multiple stories and you weren't able to achieve that setback or that that setback was still insufficient, um, that would be something that would be under our purview, I would imagine, right? It would come before HAB and it would go to planning board and city council if any project was being proposed for the marketplace to add stories to a building on that on that site. Um, so I, I would hope that we would have the ability then to to temper any negative impacts that would that would affect those those particular that particular neighborhood. Um, so I do think that the side streets are, I see them more on a case-by-case -case basis rather than whole cloth saying, yes, we can wrap the corner with 60 feet as well as on the on the corridor. Um, I think that we do have to take into account where the adjacent streets lend themselves to that and where they don't. I think the Bank of America example that you gave is, is a better one where I feel like there, you wouldn't be impacting residential adjacencies, I, I feel like there we could support a taller development and it's off of the main Park Street corridor. So I, I feel like it could work. Um, likewise, the CVS parking, you're adjacent to the parking structure, it's already taller. So I feel like that has some, some potential. So I guess the, the short answer, Alan, is I see it, it's a little bit more on a case by case basis in terms of the, of the opportunities that you mentioned on the side streets. Um, and then uh, with regards to Webster Street, I, I appreciate the comment by the caller, which is basically that it shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't treat Webster as an afterthought. I, I do think that we need to, and, and to Jen's point, I do think that there's a lot of value to that corridor as well. And um, I guess the, the fact that it has a, a lower limit that currently, I, I don't necessarily, um, I guess it's the same, I would encourage the same approach. I think that having 
multiple stories. If you're going to go higher than three or four stories on the Webster Street, I think that stepping it back um, enough to allow for us not to lose sort of the, the feel that's currently there, I think would be helpful. Um, I think that Neptune site is sort of unique because it's a corner and it's set, it's at the end of the corridor and it, it the grade starts to drop off uh, as you get into Neptune Plaza. And so maybe there um, a little bit higher uh, development could be, a, could be achieved. Um, so again, I, I think that a lot of these, um, uh, I feel like the proposed projects and the specific sites are gonna play a large role into what is appropriate for a specific site. And um, so I guess generally speaking, I'm open to uh, higher, you know, allowing for higher development, but I think that it does need to be considered. And I think stepping it back is, is a good strategy to making that happen. Thank you. Could I could I um, get clarification on one thing that uh, Board Member Sanchez mentioned was his assumption that there would be some kind of a design review process which would involve the HAB or the Planning Commission um, concerning new development uh, along the Park Street corridor. Um, I know that it seems like the, the state is pushing towards this uh, objective design standards where there would be less subjective review in those situations. And a project um, addressing these sensitive height issues may never uh, see the light of day as far as coming before any public board. Alan, do you have any comment on that? Yes, I, I was. I raised my hand. I was just going to comment on okay. that <laughs> aspect. Um, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, SP 330 passed two years ago had a Ready amended state laws that require for residential development projects, cities can no longer apply subjective design standards after January 2020. So I think going forward, which is why staff is interested in your comments on the sensitivity question, because what we are the work that we would need to do is really, you could think of it as checklist design review, right? The developer designed architecture meets a checklist of all the design requirements the city has to approve you can hold a public hearing but the public hearing has to be based on whether the project meets that checklist or not so um, that's how state law has set up um, the design review process for for these types of residential projects and 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 increasingly many types of uh, housing development particularly um, transitional supportive housing would have to be, um, you know, in, in some cases, ministerial review, basically no public hearing, no public input, city staff looks at the project, it meets the check boxes, we issue the building permit. So uh, increasing, that's how state law is steering, steering this housing issue. Um, so I actually have a follow-up question for uh, board member Sanchez. So using the Mr. Buckley example, those houses on his slide, if there were a four-story multifamily building being proposed adjacent to it, what sort of criteria would we be looking for? I think, you know, and, and I can throw out some examples and kind of get your idea. So the um, Secretary of the Interior Standards provide, I think there's a preservation brief about ad new additions. I think it provides a lot of good um, 
guidance on how new construction can be done sensitive, you know, in a way that's very sensitive to the historic buildings. Um, would that be a good model for us to kind of look into to develop those standards? I mean, we could, I could also pull up the brief so we could see what we're talking about, but um, just offering some talking points for you to, some thoughts for you to chew on and think about and to give us more comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know that I have any specific recommendations, but if we're talking about check boxes, right, and we're saying, okay, we have to provide a list that has to be um, that has to be inclusive of the concerns that are that that we would be that we would want incorporated. So, could we say, as an example, if the property abuts a historic district, like it does in that example that was shown in the photo? then could we then have a certain set of criteria as you're suggesting, Alan, that has the the secretary's standards have to be met as as a as one of their criteria for approval. Um, so we could, I guess th that's the question is could we limit it in that way or could we request that 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 a certain threshold be met in terms of when you're abutting a historic versus just a residential but that in addition, it's a historic district that it's abutting. That then maybe the criteria are a little bit more stringent. Is that is that possible? Yeah, just applying some criteria to and and um, I think Mr. Buckley also referenced the city has adopted a set of objective design standards. Um, and do we want to develop that a little bit further? I think I think it covers a, a very wide range of issues, and staff could also bring that back to this board and kind of have seek your comments on it. I, I, I would encourage that. I think Mr. Beckley said also that he felt that it had a lot of gaps and, and needed work. And so maybe this board could provide some input that uh, could be reflected into yeah. those um, staff thinks, standards. Yeah, staff thinks our plan board actually did a really good job in coming with those standards, but, and it, it covers, and we've went through many rounds, but um, I, I acknowledge this board hasn't seen it, so um, we we could right. bring that back at a future meeting. Thank you. Uh, I think it's important because there there's a lot of potential issues there concerning historic sites that may not have been adequately addressed, and the Secretary of Interior standards are are uh, you know very well thought out standards, but um, they're mentioned quite a few times in our preservation ordinance, and I don't see any um, sign that they're actually being followed. So. That's a whole nother issue. Do we have um, other comments regarding the Park Street, Webster Street, North Park Street height limits in Rena? I'm not seeing any raised hands. Well, at this point, um, I'm wondering if it makes sense to, to continue the discussion of some of these other I mean, we got down, we got through the Park Street, Webster Street and North Park Street district discussion. We haven't discussed the neighborhoods. We haven't discussed the shopping center districts or the residential districts um, or the multifamily combined district. So we've got a lot, we've got more topics to cover, but I'm afraid, but I'm kind of concerned that we might be getting tired. I see nodding heads. <laughs> um, but can, uh, my understanding is that regardless of what this board does, that this uh, housing element 
first draft is going to the state in a few weeks. And, um, but it's just, but it's not as significant as it sounds that, it, that there's still room for comment and adjustment in the months ahead. I, yes, I would say, um, unless you have concerns about the city staff's current approach to just, you know, comments on the background report, I don't, which I don't think this board has any concerns over just policies, programs. Um, I, I would say from a historic preservation focus, per, preservation perspective, I think your interests are probably going to be with the development standards um, um, and, and the outcome of building designs is right. what I'm taking. And well, so that those details aren't necessarily going to be in the document that we're sending to HCD, except for those examples that, that um, I had referenced to, to illustrate, to help the state understand how we're changing our zoning to facilitate housing. Well, I know that I personally have comments about the, the transit overlay district, and I'm very concerned about that. And I, I know that in the changes reflected, it sort of, it, it mentions the removal of the transit overlay district, but then a couple bullet points down, it talks about it again as another item. So, um, but I, I'd hope that we'd have an opportunity to come back to that and discuss it in more depth, because I think that's a really significant issue uh, for uh, concerning historic neighborhoods and with a potential negative impact. And as, as is upzoning, um, and I'm just, I'm just kind of curious that it, it sounds like at this point, whatever the city goes forward with to HCD, it's really not receiving any approval from any, from the council or from any body within the city, right? That's, that's an authority. It's just going to, it's just being submitted as a draft. Is that correct? Yes. So under state law, I mean, this is really a, uh, a trial run with this HCD to see if um, our housing element even meets state law, basic requir programmatic requirements. Okay. You know, are we meeting our housing need? Is our approach um, to meeting the arena, furthering fair housing? Um, so it's, and, and, and we could tell you that the state's focus on the fair housing issue has been predominantly their comments to a lot of the Southern California cities. I mean, that's the issue that they have been focusing on. So it's for us, it's not just a numbers game, but it's also, it's also about the distribution of housing opportunity, which is why um, the upzoning in the art districts is that important because more than 70% of the land area in Alameda are the art districts. So to not create any housing opportunities in the R districts means we're really isolating the new housing opportunity to the Northern waterfront, to Alameda point and, and the shopping centers, select few shopping center sites. So we're not really reversing the development patterns in the past. Well, there's, there's so, been a lot of discussion about allowing unlimited density within existing building shells, for instance, and we have some of the enormous um, historic buildings, historic houses that could, accommodate and have accommodated multiple units. I think the background to uh, Director Thomas's discussion with us last month was an eight unit house. 
Um, and that can go a long ways to achieving our RENA goals without, without building additional buildings, um, but allowing that kind of thing to happen. But I think that's a discussion that needs to happen. So, um, so the, when, the, when HCD reviews this, this draft and they come back to the city with comments, there's nothing fixed there. That, that's my understanding is that we're not gonna be required from that point on to, to accept, um, or if, it, if we're offering something that they've accepted, then we're, we're required to put that in our final draft or um, I'm not really clear on, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, since we haven't approved this, then how, how can they, and then they're providing information back to us. It's nothing more than just information. Is that correct? Right. So the goal really is to achieve a compliant housing element. There's no question about that, right? And to, to have a compliant housing element, HCD needs to certify it as being compliant with state law. So this submittal of the draft is really a, a, a test run to see what sort of, whether, this, whether the state thinks we're heading in the right direction or not. And the feedback that we're gonna get in 90 days, which is towards the end of August, is going to be really valuable because that's going to help steer the conversation in the fall on what we need to focus on. And okay. Um, so yeah, the, the HCD feedback is going to be very critical. If HCD says yes, you're doing something well, then I think we're not going to we're going to leave that. But if HCD says no, you still need to work on this area, then those are going to be the areas that we would have to focus on. And from what we've seen in the first round comments from Southern California cities who's been through this, a lot of it is about AFFH. A lot of it is about you know verifying that. The sites inventory sites are actually valid, right? And what are we doing? In particular, in cities that have had anti-housing policies, like Alameda has for all this time, there's going to be extra scrutiny on how are we going to overcome those types of policies to to make to make um, the housing opportunities real. So that's that's what. I'm anticipating HCD to focus on. Well, I'm not, I don't think I'm seeing any objections to multi-housing, multi-family housing. It's, it's really how it's done. Um, so uh, at this point, we can continue on and discuss these items in more detail, or we can postpone it till next month or a future meeting. Any comments? Let me let me decide. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Jen. I think I would prefer to postpone and and maybe come back next time with maybe what now that we really know what we need to focus on, maybe we can come up with a, a more direct uh, objective for next time. That well, I know that. Okay, I, I I've been kind of going down this list, uh, which were part of the the changes to the housing element that we're gonna be re presented to the planning board. Um, I'm kind of going down that list as, as our talking, as our conversation uh, discussion points. So, you know, let's keep track of that and um, keep going on it next time. In agreement, okay. 
Can I uh, may I Go just ahead. bring that list up again so that um, I think maybe one one way to uh, a good way to end this meeting so that we're productive is um, to let's flag some of the areas that we want to focus on at the next meeting and you could you know you could also take this in bite-sized chunks i mean i think we're gonna have we'll have three months um actually two meetings june july if you want to continue june july august is typically your recess but you know we could spend um the subsequent meetings focusing on either all of the topics or certain parts of the topics um, we could also come back and revisit the Park Street, Webster Street discussion. Um, I said at the beginning of the meeting, that's that's um, an area that staff would really like your feedback on in more detail. So maybe, you know, you could walk the sites between now and then, think about certain sites that are maybe available, you know, like the one next to McGee's, there's a parking lot. And if, if that site were to be developed, what do you think it should look like? How tall should those buildings be? You know, um, that's the kind of feedback that staff would appreciate from this board. Okay. Um, yeah. And also kind of the criteria that I've sort of mentioned, like, Hey, if, if there is new development adjacent to a much shorter one or two story Victorian house from, um, from 1870s, what, um, what sort of parameters or des design standards are we looking at? And, and keeping in mind that, you know, if we set, standards too stringent and it affects the ability for uh for a developer to achieve the unit count the yield that we were inspect expecting then we'll have to think about some other place in the city to plug those units in so it's really kind of a fine balance of you know specifying setting expectations for a developer of how much volume of building they get and how the building uh, would appear and how it would be compatible with the adjacent neighborhood. So not an easy task, but that's why we have you experts on the- board. No, and that's, you know, a lot of our time tonight was just answering questions and um, not really getting much feedback or giving much feedback. So, uh, you know, I would like to reach a point where this board can provide more comments and address specific issues. Um, and I think we're kind of, we're getting to that level where we understand um, the issues better after two meetings now, where we've had a lot of questions. I see heads nodding. So people are saying, yes, we understand. Um, okay. Well, um, I mean, I think that the neighborhood stations district I think is an important discussion for this for this board and I would like to take that up um, next time for sure and the residential districts of course we already started sort of talking about the, the the transit overlay district and and whether or not it's included or not um, I think those are very important issues and so let's you know focus on those next next time and um, see if we have the ability to expand that list uh, as we go, depending on how many comments and questions there are. Alan? Chair Saxby Sax and the board, um, how can staff help prepare you for the next conversation? Is there, are there 
certain materials you would like to see, certain resources um, we could include? Well, I, I think the most important thing probably is to keep us informed as to what the other boards, like the planning board, what's their reaction to all this? And is, I mean, has something changed between May 5th and June, the June meeting that we're proposing to have? Um, just understanding what's in flux and, um, you know, obviously these things are developing pretty fast. So getting that kind of information, I think is really important. Um, do other board members have particular requests? Board member Witt? I, I, I would sort of like to know what Oakland's doing. Does Oakland have, a, have an equivalent or Piedmont? Do they have an equivalent board? And, and do we know, we, do we know with how, how they're in real time, what, what they're approving and what the process that they're going through? Well, interestingly, I had dinner with a friend who lives in Piedmont just last week and their arena number is 530 something houses, units. So it's a much, much smaller number than, than we're dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, they're, they're uh, trying to accommodate the state's requirements. Um, they're accepting that, that number. And Oakland, I'm sure his number is much, much higher than ours. So um, I don't know what that number is. So there is a historical board in, in, in Piedmont and they, they're looking at these, these same issues. Well, yeah, the city, although I think, I don't know if, it, if it's actually an historical it's, advisory board or if it's just the planning board that takes it on. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe Piedmont has the Landmarks Commission or equivalent. Yeah. Um, I'm certain Oakland does. Um, but they do. Yeah, but yes, all 101 cities in the Bay Area are going through the same exercise. And each city has a different RENA number and every city is approaching it in, in kind of their own unique ways. So, um, yeah, I'm um, also, I think what's unique about Alameda too is um, we have flagged, you know, we have flagged a lot of properties in the city on the study list. So it, it you know, it, it kind of comes back to the, the uh, it, to me, it kind of comes back to a question about really are all of these resources that we've listed on the study list, um, do they need to be restudied or not? And do we need to really refine or fine tune it so that we don't just have this um, broad question out there? It seems like in development now, I mean, everywhere you go, there's a question about preservation or, or whether it's worth preserving. Um, so. Well, it would be wonderful if the city would allocate funds to do further research and embellish or refine our, our study list. I mean, that would be excellent to have actual documentation prepared for, you know, many of these historic buildings or sites, it, right. but that also, I mean, you could also look at it in terms of historic neighborhoods, not just individual sites, but um, areas that were developed around a particular period of time that have a pretty closely related set of buildings. Yeah, that actually is a very good comment. And I think that's something worth looking into. I mean, most people don't think of historic preservation as facilitating new development, right? A lot of times, preservation is associated with stopping development, but if preservation can be 
if, if the rules around preservation can be clear, right, um, can be more refined, and in, in some cases, it could, it could clear, clear the path for development, right? Meaning, well, my understanding of the study list was that it was a drive-by survey, and so there really wasn't exhaustive research. Um, it was just that's correct. Kind of seeing what was there and, um, you know, George Gunn, has done a lot of research on buildings in Alameda and his books help clarify the dates they were built and the architect, if there was one and builder and that kind of thing. But that the survey is, is just a, a really preliminary uh, assessment of it's what flag, resources right. we have. It's a result of flagging properties that weren't further study. And in some cases we have done for further study, but not, not, right. um, not very, no, I think, not I in think depth that um you know there's as there is more development pressure in alameda that it it really asks the question can the city allocate resources to helping understand what resources we have before they're threatened and if if there are resources that we've put on our study list that really don't need to be protected to understand what those are as well yeah i i i, I would agree so um Sounds like a council request for money. Um, okay, so we're gonna move, we're gonna close this uh, agenda item for tonight and revisit it. And uh, you know, please think hard about these issues and um, look at the information that's provided to us. Um, Tom, I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. I wanna uh, just ask a quick question. Um, sure. Uh, you had asked uh, Alan what you could do to help us prepare. So maybe uh, not to skip ahead too much, but I wanted to go back to the, the ask I had at the beginning of the meeting. So if the transit combining district is still on the table as an option, could you provide us with um, a map sort of delineating what that area would be? And if it's not, then could you I mean, it, it said in the in the documentation that it sounds like it's no longer being considered. So if it is still under consideration, could you provide us with graphic information of where that corridor lies and how that relates to the R districts? I think it would be important for that discussion. Right, absolutely. Um, well, and if in addition to that, I think that we should, that the, one of my biggest concerns about the transit overlay is that it could potentially grow. So why wouldn't there be a bus route on Clement Street? Why wouldn't there be a bus route on Shoreline or Otis? Right. Um, in the future, if demand requires it, then the potential the services could increase, and that just I think that creates all sorts of problems with the transit overlay. Yeah. Okay. No, thank you for that comment. Um, if I could just quickly update, so so I think the thinking as of right now. Uh, the transit concept is still there because anytime you plan around high transit, um, I mean, that, 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 that's kind of a fundamental of, of good city planning, right? You place housing where, where um, there's accessible to transit. Um, so that concept is still there, whether it's in the form of an overlay or baked into our uh, standard districts, that, that's probably still to be determined. Um, but the concept about... Um, facilitating more housing opportunity near transit is definitely something we're still looking at. 
and um, yes, at the next meeting, um, we could we could probably provide a map. We'll we'll see where this goes, but uh, yeah, we could generate a map showing where the um, uh, where those transit corridors are. Basically, high high quality transit corridors. If it's bus service, fifteen minute service, weekdays, things like that. God, it seems like that concept is so much more applicable to fixed rail type transit and not bus lines, just in, in my opinion, because bus lines can be changed so easily and zoning laws can't. But anyway, my two cents. Um, board member Lau. Yeah, hi, this is uh, Alan. Can you provide the, um, because next meeting we'll be talking about about residential district. Uh, I saw you have uh, um, the map, you know, talking about that, you know, just show it to us about the, um, the detail, you know, the summary map. Do you mind to sh uh, share or send the link to us and then we can, like, um, we can have it. Oh, the zoning, zoning map, right? Yeah. Yes, okay, absolutely. It's better for, for prepare then, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Other requests? Okay. We've got our work cut out for us. If no objections, I will gonna close out the 7A discussion for tonight. And we're gonna move on to uh, item eight, board communications. Does anyone have a communication they wanna share? No hands. Okay. Staff communications, item nine. I have a quick one. Um... So our uh, longtime building official, Greg McFan, um, has retired today oh, no. his last day. Oh, I bring no. this up because um, in our preservation ordinance, our building official plays an important role in some decision-making. So I, he's been with the city, I think 22 years. Is that right, Henry? Yeah, yeah long 22, time. 1999, long time. yeah. Yeah, so wow. um, we congratulate him. And I, I thought I'd just share that with the board. Thank you. You'll be missed. Yeah, his experience is really, really great resource. Um, and the, that's the only update I have. Okay. So that brings on uh, item 10, oral communications. Again, is there, are there any public speakers? We have one speaker with their hand up. That's uh, Christopher Buckley. And okay. Another person actually just put up their hand. So we have two. Okay, so we have two speakers. And Christopher uh, Buckley is first. Mr. Buckley. Uh, Christopher Buckley again. Uh, just regarding Greg McFan, yes, he's been outstanding and he was also instrumental in expanding application of the California Historical Building Code to all pre 1942 buildings which maybe help facilitate converting them to uh, existing buildings to multifamily because change of use, uh, you won't have to jump through as many building code hoops to do that if you are eligible for the California Historical Building Code. Um, I'd also like to talk about the study list that wasn't on the agenda specifically. So is that okay to say sure. something about the study list? Um, if the study list is going to be uh, looked at again, which I, which I think is, would be really valuable, it would be very important to do that um, looking at additions to the study list should be part of that exercise uh, for a couple of reasons. One, when the current study list was developed, uh, there were some mistakes made and uh, buildings that were intended to be on the list didn't get included. They got the address wrong, for example. And uh, so those need to be checked. 
also they systematically excluded buildings that had significant alterations, like if they put on asbestos siding or stucco or whatever uh, and took ornamentation off. Uh, but those are opportunity sites for historic preservation and they should be kept on in some form or recognized and encouraged to be restored. Since then, a number of buildings that were so treated have been restored, including my own house, which was covered with stucco, not on the study list. I restored it based on historic photographs and then got it put, put on the study list. So there's an important gap there. And finally, and maybe I'm out of order here, um, I'd like to respond to the comments, um, I think some misimpressions of the ADU strategy as an alternative density bonus. Can I do that? Or is that considered an agenda item and I can't respond now? Yeah, I think we should take that up at the next meeting and because it is on topic with our 7A agenda. Okay, I'll try to talk to Alan directly about it because Alan, I think you might mis have understood what we were proposing. Yeah, I think there's going to get further discussion on that anyway. So it'd be good to okay. clarify it. Hopefully I can connect with Alan in the next day or so before the planning board meeting. Okay, thank you, Mr. Buckley. Next we have Karen Bay. Okay. Ms. Bay? Hello again. Hi. Um, yeah, so um, I just really quickly di didn't really get a chance to introduce myself. It, it was the first time that I um, called in <clears throat> to uh, uh, give you comments on um, this board. Um, I, my name is, again, is Karen Bay. I've lived in Alameda <clears throat> for almost 40 years. Um, and I actually love uh, historic districts and old homes. I live in an 1891 A.W. Patiani Victorian that I purchased when I was in my 20s. Uh, my late 20s, and I've been restoring it for, for over 20 years. <laughs> it's very, or more, actually, I moved out of it at one point. Um, but it's, it's an expensive endeavor. Um, but I actually love it. I, I love my home. I, I couldn't live in a new home, to be perfectly honest with you. I, uh, I also restored an 1890 Victorian on the East End. Um, that's how I, when I first moved to Alameda, that's how I fell in love with Alameda. I would never want to live anywhere else. Um, and then the last project I did uh, was on the East End. It was a 1910 Craftsman bungalow. And I, I, I just, I had claustrophobia when I moved into it because I was so used to living at 11 foot ceilings and all of a sudden I, was, I felt like I was gonna die or not be able to breathe. But after about, six or seven months, I started going to open houses, the craftsman bungalow so that I could see how to restore it. And I fell in love with my bungalow. So I just wanted to share that. I, I enjoyed listening to your conversation. <clears throat> I know what people are passionate about historic preservation and I can understand that. I, I would never let somebody put vinyl windows on my Victorian. So um, I'm very, very particular about how uh, I preserve my home for my children. So I just want you to know that's who I am. I'm not somebody that wants to tear things down and change Alameda to, you know, to get, I love the, the, all of the wonderful historic districts. Uh, 
I, I just <clears throat> feel like we can accommodate some new development within our historic districts. And, and I, I just love to talk to you and listen to you about how we can do that on the West End. Uh, so I just wanted to, again, introduce myself <laughs> so that I can maybe call in on the next meeting and uh, have comments as well. So Please thank do. Thank you. So any other speakers? No public speakers this time. Okay. Well, with that, we come to item 11, which is adjournment. So um, thank you all for your time and your comments. And I look forward to continuing our discussion in a month or so. Staff want to say thank you to the board as well. well I mean, this thank is you, good. Staff. This, yeah, I mean, this, uh, we, there, I know there's a lot more to talk about, but uh, even what we had discussed tonight, I feel like we've made a big step forward. So looking forward to um, the next discussion. As are we. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks.